Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, the tension between protecting the past while preparing for the future, and what happens when those two things collide. The debate around the spatial plan has really been boiled down to heritage versus affordability. In an era of relentless population growth and skyrocketing property prices, an impassioned debate around heritage buildings and areas is lighting up the capital and raising wider questions about what we choose to preserve and at what cost. They're cold, but even if you fix them up, you're still going to have a single-family home on a very valuable plot of land that you know could have housed you know, 20 more people. So where does the happy medium lie, and is there a danger that the loudest voices are drowning out more important conversations for the capital? First, let's talk a bit about heritage buildings and protected areas, because this is actually weirdly complicated. Dr Julia Gatley is an associate professor at the University of Auckland and a former head of the School of Architecture and Planning. Okay, so heritage building is a building that is recognised as being significant in some way. And there are lots of different types of significance. So social, cultural, historical significance, aesthetic or architectural significance, technical significance. Buildings are are recognised as heritage buildings for lots of different reasons. Now, contrary to popular belief, heritage buildings aren't given that status just because they are beautiful. In fact, many heritage buildings aren't beautiful. They might have special cultural or historical significance, or they might represent the work of an influential architect, or they might just show how people lived at a particular point in time. You know, For example, a beat-up, modest state house from the 1950s might be preserved to show how people of that era lived. And it's not just buildings either. Whole areas of land can be given heritage status. So how does a building or an area actually get heritage listed? Again, a bit of a complicated process. There are basically two separate registers. Heritage New Zealand maintains one where they list historic places which they and their board think have special merit. But Heritage NZ doesn't actually have any real power here. This lies with local councils. Heritage New Zealand listing does not afford any protection over an historic place. It's the local authority scheduling on on the district plan that does operate as a form of protection. So what does protection here actually mean? It means that with resource consent being a requirement when additions, alterations or demolition are proposed, the level of intervention that can be allowed without a resource consent is written into the individual district plans of the local authorities up and down the country. Essentially, if you own a heritage building and you want to do some serious work on it, you probably have to jump through a whole bunch of hoops. This involves making an application to Heritage NZ, which is considered a quote-unquote affected party and which will weigh up what you're proposing to do and whether it's likely to mess with the heritage, as it were, of the heritage property. If they're in support of an application um, and other affected parties are in support, then a resource consent can be issued without necessarily being publicly um, notified. Whereas if the affected parties do raise concerns about a particular proposal, then it would be publicly notified. Other people have the opportunity to to make submissions and it goes to a, a local authority hearing. 
That's why things like spatial plans are important. They essentially set out what you can and can't do when it comes to building and demolition and so on. Now, earlier this year, Wellington City Council unveiled its new spatial plan, and there were a few big changes in there which have ruffled a few feathers. Here's the New Zealand Herald's Wellington Issues reporter, Georgina Campbell. So the spatial plan was really put together in response to these forecasts that Wellington is going to have up to 80,000 more people um, living here over the next 30 years. Um, So we are massively short of houses and Wellington City Council officials sort of put their heads together and were like, right, what are we going to do about this? So there's been quite extensive consultation so far. We looked at sort of creating a new suburb out in Makara. We talked about high-density housing in, in the city, and I think that's where things have really landed and the decision has been made that it would be a good idea to build up. Okay, so that's sort of the overarching theme is it, of the plan, the idea that like you need to intensify housing in Wellington and the way that we're going to do that is through building up and in certain suburbs, is that right? Yes, that's right. It's not just Wellington City. Um, obviously, Wellington is, is a lot bigger than, than just the central city um, and the government has released its national policy statement on urban development, which sort of came out just before the uh, draft spatial plan was going out for consultation. So that's sort of been smushed in um, with the spatial plan, if you like. So it means that within um, sort of train stations and things, areas that are in close proximity to those, we're going to see building heights go up to six storeys. So that'll really affect the, the western suburbs, for example, here in Wellington, like the you know the leafy Nios and Kandalas. We're, we're going to see a lot um, higher density in those areas. And eventually, um, when Let's Get Wellington moving actually gets moving, we've got that massive rapid transit spine that's going to be going through the city. And I think that will be the clearest example of, of this happening in terms of new infrastructure. So building around those transport hubs that we already have, but we're going to have a massive transport hub running right through the city where you know it's expected thousands of apartments are going to pop up um, along that spine. The idea here is pretty simple. If you're a property developer who owns a block of land with a house on it, you could just rent out that house to a family, or you could knock it down and build a big high-rise building with 50 apartments on it. In the first scenario, one family has a home, and the second, 50 families have a home. The problem is, heritage rules are complicating things a bit. The debate around the spatial plan has really been boiled down to heritage versus affordability. This is all to do with character areas. So at the moment, there are parts of the city identified as character areas. And any pre-1930 builds in these areas require a resource consent before you can demolish them. So it's basically really hard to demo those houses. The plan proposes to change this up, basically by creating um, sort of super-targeted smaller character areas that exhibit a cohesive streetscape. So anything outside of what they're calling these little sub-zones loses that demolition protection. New Zealand Herald editor Chris Knox has very kindly crunched some numbers on this for us. If the spatial plan goes ahead as it is, almost 4,000 buildings will no longer be in a zone with these demolition controls. Of course, like not 
all these buildings um, will be pre-1930s builds, right? But it does demonstrate the scope um, and scale of the, the area changes that are being proposed. Um, the difference in Newtown, for example, alone is 1,220 buildings. So that's what has gained the most traction um, in terms of the spatial plan debate. But I really put that down to the people on either side of that debate having the loudest voices. The council is taking submissions on the spatial plan at the moment. One of the affected suburbs, Thorndon, actually has a group of local residents who've written up a template submission. It emphasises the area's special character and describes it as a heritage suburb of unique qualities and values which merits special attention. Thorndon's historic heritage and residential character are inextricably linked, the submission reads, and cannot be artificially separated. But what is character? Where does it come from and how is it preserved? Isla Stewart is an urbanist and a spokesperson for City for People, an eclectic group with members from environmental and transport backgrounds as well as renters and students. There are these workmen cottages that are very you know, common around Thorndon. They were, they were built for you know, workers, working people. But... In recent years, the value of these properties have gotten you know, so expensive that the people who that these properties were originally intended for now can't live there anymore. Now, w- what is character? Have we kept character in these suburbs by forcing all of these people out? I'd argue no. Because, you know, what makes a city? A city is made by the people that live there. And these buildings that were built for these people... Um, can no longer afford to live in these properties. Heritage-protected buildings, they are a reminder of our past and, you know, what our city used to be. And, and, And they can look nice sometimes. But at the end of the day, a city is for the people that live in the city. And what good is a city if you're living in cold, damp houses with a two hour long commute? Yeah, because architecture, I guess, is sort of, it's a combination of two almost diametrically opposed ideas, right, in that there is the beauty and the art element to a building, but a building fundamentally is about housing people. That's exactly right. Um, like those, those workmen cottages, they were you know, built to house you know, ordinary, everyday families, but nowadays they can only be afforded by you know, the very, very wealthy. And that original purpose, you know, the, the character of, of those properties have been lost, not through the fault of the building, but by the fact that they're just so unaffordable. And I, I think that's a real problem that's missing from this heritage debate. So is this a situation where the only thing holding up housing intensification in Wellington City is protected areas and heritage properties? No, I don't think so. I think that's really oversimplifying it. Um, These character areas are a piece of the jigsaw puzzle, right, to housing affordability. But it's not as simple as having one or the other. Like, I I just think that's a really unfair characterisation to say, well, if we're not allowed to to knock down these um, pre-1930s builds, then, then we'll never get affordable housing in Wellington. There are 
so many other um, areas in Wellington that will be densified under the spatial plan. For example, Tiaro, you know, there's a there's a lot of plans to build up and the city fringes to, to build up as well. You know, if I was launching a, a campaign for affordable housing and, you know, disclaimer, I am a 26-year-old who's renting with no hope of um, home ownership anytime in, in the near future, I would be targeting the um, the car yards on Kent and Cambridge terraces, you know. Um, there is so much space in the city that is poorly used other than, you know, I guess what a being referred to as heritage hell holes, where affordable housing needs to and, and should go. Still, the heritage conversation is what's dominating discussion at the moment. And Dr Julia Gatley says the key is thinking creatively about bringing old buildings into the modern age, sort of like property upcycling. It's more complicated by the fact that we are living in an age of limited resources and that designing for a sustainable future is something that we all have to be cognizant of. So there's a lot to be said for making best use of what we already have rather than creating additional waste and using a whole lot more new materials by demolishing things and starting again. Um, It's definitely the case, you know, we're living in a time of enormous housing shortage, so why should we be demolishing Um, large blocks of housing that could be readily adapted for strengthened, repaired, um, fixed up for ongoing use as housing. It's a public good, right? We, We all benefit from heritage if that's something that we, you know, as a society, we value. And we can protect it. But this comes at a cost for... For everybody, in the form of, you know, mouldy homes and less affordable properties. Now, maybe as a society, that's, that's fine. But we need to consider who pays for heritage. Now, landlords, they don't always upgrade their properties, either because they can't afford it, because they don't have to, or because it's simply impossible. Now, this leaves tenants with bad quality properties that are mouldy, that are hard to live in, and these are generally rentals, and they are generally borne by you know the people in our society least able to afford it. Even if we do, you know, force all these landlords to upgrade the property, we're still left with these land-intensive homes on these small suburbs, which pushes up rents for everybody. You know, because they're taking the more expensive option instead of just building you know twenty properties on that same section. Now, both of these hit. Um, those who can't afford it the hardest. So what we've effectively got under our current system is we've got heritage, which is, you know, beneficial for everybody, being paid for by those who can least afford it. And I think that's a real problem. Our policies need to be weighted towards more affordable housing rather than aesthetic preferences. It's interesting to see the way that the battle lines have been drawn. Um, you know, there's there's a reason that Wellington has a lot of heritage, just because we've had a lot of advocacy for maintaining heritage in Wellington. Um, and uh, you know, if if you look at both sides, the heritage advocates, they're, they're well organised people. They kind of um, this isn't their first rodeo in terms of these campaigns. And we've also seen, you know, um, buildings being protected like the Gordon Wilson block flats or the the Central Library. Going 
going through this process um, because of their architectural value. Um, and then you've got the other side, uh, which is you know those really advocating for affordable um, housing, and that's been um, spearheaded by Isla Stewart as their media spokesperson. Uh, and then when those initial comments came out in a press release saying that they launched this campaign, um, the phone number at the bottom was for for Neil Jones, you know, who is a former senior Labour advisor. So in terms of the battle lines, these are loud voices and organised people who are certainly sort of getting a lot of airtime with, with their views. I mean, it, it, it is in a bit of a special situation, Wellington, though, right, in that, I mean... So I've lived in all of the big, well, if you still consider Dunedin one of the big four cities, <laughs> I've lived in all of the big four cities uh, in the past sort of uh, six years or so. And the thing that I found different about Wellington is that it really is a walking city. Mm. And I found that a big part of its appeal. But God ain't making any more land, especially not in Wellington. So there is this tension that if it's to grow at the rate that it wants to grow at, you, you simply have to build up and find a way to sort of do it, right? Yeah, and and I think, um, you know, looking at, at that spatial plan consultation, there wasn't much appetite for creating a new suburb. And you're so right. The lovely thing about Wellington is that it's so compact and walkable. And I don't think Wellingtonians want to become the next Auckland, heaven forbid, um, with, with How that dare urban... you? <laughs> I had to get that wee jab in there. And, um, you know, with this sort of sprawl, because... You yeah, I think a big part of Wellington is that it's quirky and compact. So we do have to build up. And I I think as well, Wellington is quite a creative place, right? And I, I think that developers who, you know, should the spatial plan go ahead as it is, I, I really doubt that um, developers are kind of just going to, this is going to be some kind of free-for-all where they're going to build to the absolute maximum height allowances and there is this fear that we'll sort of have Stalinist buildings popping up in Mount Victoria. There's still the resource consent process to go through and I think that's where a lot of the checks and balances will come in, where... There will be considerations about keeping the development sympathetic to to the suburb. And, um, I mean, I was talking to Ian Castles about this, who's the developer out in Shelley Bay. I mean, that's such a classic example of sort of how how this can be boiled down. I think um, one of the lobby groups put out renders of of him building to the absolute limits and it just looked like a massive concrete wall. Um, And I I do believe, um, regardless of of the politics out there, that he has tried to create something that's innovative and and sympathetic to the area. And I think we can reasonably expect that to happen um, in, in our inner city suburbs as well. George, this is just the most Wellington thing ever, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? I honestly, um, when this debate started firing up, I just sort of sat back in my chair and rolled my eyes and was like, here we go again. Submissions on the Wellington Draft Spatial Plan are open until next Monday. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Dr Julia Gatley, Isla Stewart and the NZ Herald's Georgina Campbell. Ka kite anō.